Mortgage Investors Group would like to celebrate our country's independence by thanking all of our military veterans and those who are currently serving our country. We understand and are so grateful for the sacrifices you have made for our freedom. MIG would also like to honor the memory of those who have died defending our nation and their families who have given so much for her defense. Welcome to the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. Now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray, and I'm your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our uh, executive producer and co-host. And we want to thank you all for coming in here this morning and and joining us and starting your weekend with us. And I tell you, um, we have a very special show for you today, and I'm very excited about it. We have what we are labeling Echoes from the Greatest Generation. Um, It is a group of folks that are here with us today from Echo Ridge Retirement Community here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they are all World War II veterans, and they all have some experiences uh, with our military, and they are the greatest generation. And we're gonna we're gonna talk with them and have them share a little bit more with us about their lives and, and their experiences. Because today we are really celebrating the month of July, being it what it is. Um, we're talking about July Fourth and what it means to be America and Americans. And, you know, it's so important to talk about the people who helped create what we have today. And, you know, Kevin, we're blessed every day to be in America. But to have this radio show, to be able to realize the the dream of Americans to own your own home, Mm -hmm. it's because of this generation and other generations and soldiers who are in service today and soldiers who will be serving tomorrow. Mm. That's the reason we're able to enjoy these uh, liberties today. Mm. It's because of these guys and all the future ones that are coming down the road and they're serving today. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, without any further ado, let's get started. Get to, let's get let's going. get going. Um, we have first one of our guests here is Richard Gallagher. Um, he's with the U. He was with the U.S. Army, and just a little bit, of, um, Richard. He entered the um, army in April of '43. Um, so first off, let me ask you this, because um, Richard, first of all, thank you for joining us. Number one, um, but why don't we first start off with just telling us a little bit about kind of where you came from and what it was that you entered the Army for. And just give me a little background about yourself and whatever you'd like to share. I'm from East Tennessee here. I was born in Knoxville. I lived within 50 miles of here all my life. And we were very patriotic. And as I grew up, particularly during the 30s, I guess from the time I was 12 years old, I knew the war was coming. Mm. And we just assume the fact that we were going. Yeah. And when I uh, got ready to leave high school, there's a group of us said, we'd all come back to Harriman and join, join together. Hmm. We didn't do that, but that was what we were really considering. Yeah. So I entered the UT, and as things grew uh, closer, I wanted to take this advanced military uh, to do that, you had to join the reserves. So I joined the reserves. And uh, my dad and I talked over in hopes I could get through my college. And I was in my junior year, but I was uh, serving uh, as a, an apprentice at a paper mill. 
as part of my training. And after the, uh, Pearl Harbor, the next day when I walked in, every man in there was ready to quit their job, get in the Army, and go fight. Mm. Of course, that was impractical, we knew. But right. Then as I came on back, well, I, I did uh, volunteer to, to be in the reserves and uh, until the emergency arose. And in March, they... At UT, the first time I went back into Kleist there, they said the emergency is here, and we're calling all the reserves up. So I had two weeks to get ready to go into the Army. And so we had to check out a school, and all the people, the boys that were in the reserves, left UT, which was almost every man in UT left that one day. And the... Air Corps were sending young men over here uh, to be trained. But we left, and uh, I went into basic training. And from there, we were waiting to go into uh, our officer's training. But that took a little while because they were full. And by the time they opened up, it had been uh, about six months. Hmm. And I was just traveling around waiting time and uh, so I went into officers training the only thing is I have no uh, sense of rhythm <laughs> and my feet don't go where my ears are hearing so I couldn't <laughs> give commands on the right foot or the correct foot I mean, Mark deals that. with that every day <laughs> it's a bad situation I didn't realize really what it was till much later yeah. Anyway, I didn't make it, so back in the Army I went as a private. And as I stayed a private most of the time, I was in there. <laughs> but uh, that's what it was when we got ready to start. Mm. Now, Every, I mean, if I look at your dates and I, I think about the timeline of World War II, I mean, you were right in the thick of it. And you were in yeah. Europe, you were in Asia. Um, you you mentioned to me earlier that you were in the Philippines when Nagasaki and Hiroshima happened, right? That's right. Um, how did that? I mean, I don't even know where to begin because there's so much that you could you could share. But just tell me what the feeling was like when you first made that decision. You know, I'm sure it when Pearl Harbor happened, that probably planted the seed. That's right. And then it came to flourishing, I guess, in '43 when you were ready to enter. Talk about the feeling of of the responsibility you felt to really serve your country? Well, I thought it, that was just normal. Mm. If the United States uh, was in war, then it was my duty to do what I could to help them. And seeing what was happening in Europe, uh, they closed all the churches, mm. and they were eliminating the Jews. And that was, I felt like, man, the whole world ought to go over there and do something Absolutely, about that. Yeah. So I was part of that world. Mm. And this is what I did. And even though I didn't make an officer, I was still did everything I could, which wasn't much uh, in the Army. Because after I volunteered to, to go in, the draft board chairman called my dad and said, why would you let him go in? He could have stayed and finished his college if, if he had wanted to, and then I would have gone to Oak Ridge to work. Right. But I'd rather go ahead and and spend that three years in the Army. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned earlier about, you know, that you were a private, 
Yes. And that that's, was the capacity that you served. Yes. And of course you served alongside other ranks and other people. And that's one of the things when I look at what the greatest generation accomplished, it was people from all different sides of life and different, yes. just different cultures and all of that. Talk about how it felt because you were from East Tennessee, like you mentioned, when you were being integrated in with people from New York, people from the West coast, how was that when you, cause you guys really came together as this band of brothers, really? That's right. And how did that feel? Talk about that. It, it was difficult because yeah. there were different customs and they used different words and <laughs> At times, I, I used the wrong word not knowing it and almost got in a fight Yeah, because I called somebody what I thought was a nickname, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had some, some trouble there. And I say the outfit I ended in was uh, sort of a varied outfit. That mm -hmm. One guy had been a, a bootlegger, or well, operated still, Another guy had been a pimp. Wow. And, and another guy had run a, a hardware store. Yeah. And so we were from all walks of life. And another yeah. guy was a crane operator. He turns out to be my squad leader. <laughs> and I was supposed to teach him how to build stuff in, in two hours, mm. which was a little difficult to do, but I did my best. Mm -hmm. and so I, I served under him. Yeah. Behave myself. It was good <laughs> being a private because nobody looked after you. Right. You you pretty much just, you know, took the orders and did what you had to do. That's right. And when nobody said anything, I did what I wanted to do. Mm. But being from Harriman, you're from Harriman, correct? That's, that's right. So w what type of culture shock was all of this military thing and all these people? I mean, how did that impact you personally? Well, I don't know that that... I even realized there was a culture shock. Okay. That they fed me pretty well. Actually, I had more money than I had ever had before mm -hmm. until I got married. And uh, things changed then. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah. It was, it was different, but it's what I had expected. Mm -hmm. I grew up expecting that I would do this. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think about when I moved to Atlanta back in, like, 98, and I was not in a war. <laughs> I was simply moving to Atlanta. And I just remember. It's a tough town, though. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. But but I just remember the, the change of atmosphere that occurred. And so going from the hills of East Tennessee, which is a beautiful, well-respected part of the world, then putting yourself into Asia and Europe and all these different places. For how old were you at the time, approximately? I was 21. 21 years old. You know, that's quite a bit to take in. And I think that's yes. that's one of the things that impresses me amongst a lot of other things is that these folks were able to to basically adapt so quickly. Um, let me ask you this um, a little bit about how you you talked about Pearl Harbor. You yes. talked about that you guys were almost instantaneously wanting to go and join. Um, talk about the flip side of that. Once once we actually delivered what, what I would call um, the final blow you know, which was, I guess, in August of, of 90, of, a uh, 45, um, talk about that feeling as you sat in the Philippines and you heard the news. I mean, y'all didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. Obviously it was news to you as well. Yes, it was. Um, but talk about the emotions and how that felt. Was it, was it relief? Was it fear? Well, it's sort of a shock in a way. For one thing is that it's sort of a double shock for me since they, 
uh, since three of my family farm was taken over for, mm. for that, and it turns out that the material for that first bomb came from my grandfather's uh, great grandfather's farm no area kidding. where it was where it was developed. Wow. I was glad to know what was going on up there. Mm. So was, that was the first you had known of it. That's right. You oh, could. Wow. The it was such that nobody would speak of what was going on up there, and if they you ask somebody questions, they'll answer truthfully, but they didn't tell you what was going on. They answered it in a different way, such as how many of the people up there work? And the answer was about half of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for those who don't know, he's talking about the Manhattan Project, the yes. Oak Ridge, the secret city, going from not even on the map to being the third largest city in the entire state overnight. That's right. So that's what he's speaking of, in that they took people's farms and land, and it was just a very secret thing, and it was kind of a just they overtook the area. So that's, that's right. what he's talking it, about. It completely went from farmland to... 75,000 people in a little over a year. Mm -hmm. And I got a chance to see the very start of that uh, construction out there. Mm. And also see part of it to, uh, in four months, how much progress they had made. And uh, But my feeling was when that bomb went off, hey, that's a good thing. Mm. This is where I want to go work, not mm. on the bomb, but right. on the use of that energy. Right. Oh, wow. So, Great so line. That's a really good line. That's a takeaway for me. So so the emotions that you felt were, number one, I can't even imagine, because here you are revealed now what was happening in that farm that your great-grandfather owned. Yes. You all of a sudden realize this. But then also, I mean, here you are, I don't know how many miles the Philippines is from Japan, but you get orders that you're to go to Japan. That's right. How did that feel? Well, I did. I just didn't feel on that. When orders yeah. came, you just went. Right. Well, did you? So, did, were you? Was it near the the bombing sites, or was it just? Oh in the, no, it wasn't near the bombing sites. And but even, you certainly were going to see some of the devastation by the people. Yes. Yeah. And I did see some of the devastation. I never saw combat. Mm -hmm. I saw the results of combat. Mm. And. Uh, even when I got to Japan, it was quite... Now, that was a culture shock when I went up there. I bet. But in the Philippines, I did go out and actually visit with some of these people that lived in the Philippines that had lived under the, the Japanese rule mm -hmm. and could hear what they had to say. So I got a lot of how people reacted to this war and what happened to them. Yeah. Because actually I had a cousin that was on Corregidor when this war started. Mm. And when they invaded there, why well, he was taken off on submarine. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I, I tell you, Richard, that, that this information is, is really, really well received. And we want to thank you for sharing it with us. And, and, and our segment has went by so quickly, I can't even believe it. Um, and we're going to definitely like to have you back uh, on a continuing subject matter with Oak Ridge. We have a series that we're doing. We'd love to learn more about that. So we want to thank you so much for coming in, Richard. And, guys, we're going to continue this. Uh, we have several more people to talk to, and uh, we'll be back right after these messages.
Welcome back into the Housing Hour. My name is Kevin Ray, and I'm your host here with Mark Griffith, our co-host and executive producer. And guys, we are doing a special uh, show today. It's it's part one of um, part part one of several parts potentially. May, maybe we could move this on. This is fascinating stuff, and the name of it is Echoes from the Greatest Generation. We have some folks here from Echo Ridge Retirement Community right here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we have some World War II veterans. And as we are in this summer month of July, we are celebrating uh, July 4th and uh, what it means to be Americans and and how really it is that we are uh, the most powerful country in the entire world um, economically, um, not just economically, but our military, absolutely the best military in, in the world. And, you know, we're talking to some folks who really live these experiences and also just want to give a shout out and thank you to Admiral Title for being our sponsor for this special series, Echoes from the Greatest Generation, Admiral Title, 865-531-6060. Um, and now we're going to bring in Bill Lane. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely appreciate you coming in. And and why don't you, if you don't mind, Bill, I, I know you and I discussed a little bit off off air here um, about your dates, but you, you talked about you had served in three wars, number yes. one, which is, which is incredible. And so you started out in 38. Yes. Tell, tell me a little, just give me like a, an overview of you, <laughs> of what okay, you came uh, from. I was born in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, between Greenville and Spartanburg, little mm-hmm. town of Greer. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I had an offer to go to work in a textile mill as a weaver. Well, I looked at my mother and my father. Uh, they had been in textile mills since at 16 years old. They ha- had nothing, uh, just from one paycheck to another. And I decided I wanted something that would give me a retirement. Well, I thought the service would probably be just as best I could go. And uh, I enlisted first in uh, coast artillery, and I went down to Panama. And then when I came back, I enlisted again into the Air uh, Air Corps. And I was sent down to uh, (sighs) Maxwellfield, Alabama. And anyway, we... then I went up to Chanute Field, and I was up there six months taking an aircraft mechanics course. And uh, after that, I was sent down to Macon, Georgia, and uh, this is where I was at when Pearl Harbor came up. And I had my girlfriend. We were in the theater, and the manager, I guess it was, got up on the stage, cut the movie off, and said, uh, all you military personnel report back to your base. Wow. Well, the next morning they told us to take all our civilian clothes over and give them to the supply room, and they would ship them home because we was in uniform for uh, duration plus six. And... Uh, then I went to uh, Korea. No, I, I joined the glider pilots, and uh, I went. Uh, I went 
uh, I went to uh, France, uh, England, I mean, and joined a troop care group. And uh, the, I let, got in there about 10 o'clock at night and left the next morning at 6.30 uh, going into Holland. Uh, between that time, drawing the necessary equipment I'd need, uh, they had, had no way of testing me to see if I could fly a glider. So they just put me in the seat, and I went. <laughs> wow. Wow. And uh, anyway, uh, the, my tow plane was hit with a, a machine gun blast, and it ripped a hole in its gas tank. And gas was pouring out, and it caught on fire. And he bailed out his crew, and he told me to stay on. He would try and get me to the drop zone where I would land. And he, that we went in at 600 foot, and they could not hit us with those 20 millimeters because it burst above us. They couldn't cut the fuse short enough. But he started climbing, and he got up about 1,300 foot, and then all hell broke loose. Mm. And uh, anyway, he got hit, and he caught on fire, and uh, I, I pulled up side of him on the glider, and I watched him, and he bailed out, and he shoot streamed, and he hit the ground, and he bounced like a ball. Mm. And anyway, by that time, they decided they'd work on me for a while. So I dove down to get out of that. And when I was near the landing zone, I was going way too fast. So I went through three fences, two irrigation ditches, and the uh, nose of the, air, uh, the glider came unlatched and it rose up and it scooped sand in there and uh, into the glider. And uh, anyway, I stopped and I got out and I counted the bullet holes in my glider and they were in excess of 200 because wow. I quit after that. Mm. But and this was in Holland where you yes, landed? in Holland. And uh, there was another lieutenant there that had landed, and he, uh, my troops joined up with his, and we were told to dig in and remain there. And uh, anyway, I, we dug foxholes, and I went out and got two of the parachutes. I wrapped myself up in one, and uh, uh, put one in the bottom of the uh, foxhole. And I went to sleep because I had been in New York down at Jack Dempsey's bar, and all the people in there was buying us drinks because we had put our khakis, uh, we had turned them in, and we was going in woolen uniforms. Wow. England is cool. And... Uh, Anyway, we wore pink, uh, green pants, and a, a pink, uh, green pants and a pink shirt, and 
uh, people that had asked us, said, who are you guys? I never saw that uniform before. We said, well, we're, we're uh, uh, our, uh, New Zealanders. We're on loan to the government, and we're flying <laughs> balloons for Goodyear. Well, we had a G on our wings, and the guys said, okay, let me buy you a drink. And I understand that the bartenders had orders. If somebody didn't buy us a drink, they, they, he would give us one. Mm. And uh, so, so let me make sure I understand, Bill. So you're saying that you went from being in New York City, yep. right, to being then shipped, basically uh, over by air, by air to yeah. Holland. Well, well, to to France was it right? And no, England into England, and then you took off from there yeah. in the glider, and then before you know it, you're you're you you've made an emergency landing. Yes, to through two irrigation, mm -hmm. you you were obviously, I guess, hungover, <laughs> basically from Jack Dempsey's, yeah. right? What an incredible, fascinating story. I mean, how what what was going through your mind as you laid there in that foxhole? I mean, I can't even I imagine. I didn't lay there very long because I hadn't got any sleep. In about two days, mm -hmm. I went right to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I woke up the next morning, and uh, nobody was there but me. Yeah. It all gone. So I uh, listened. And you're behind enemy lines at this point. You're behind enemy lines. No, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I heard uh, one of the guys told me before I left England that uh, I asked him, I said, how do, how do I know where the enemy's at? He said, well, listen. He said, you can tell by the rate of fire because the German machine gun goes like that and ours would go tut, 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 tut. And uh, mm. anyway, I, I listened, I heard that, and I went up, uh, headed toward them, and I saw the lieutenant, and I asked him, I said, why didn't you wake me up? He said, I thought you were up. I said, you slept through them tanks? I said, what tanks? <laughs> he said, there's a bunch of Tiger Royal tanks running around in there. And we, we were told to get out of there. And... Uh, Anyway, uh, you're wrapped up in that parachute, yeah. <laughs> it, and we would put guard and German troops waiting to be uh, evacuated. And so, what year was this? This was in '41, or when was this? Let me... No, it's in '44. Uh, '44, okay, '44, okay. And um, anyway, uh, we went. We went into Belgium, and. At an airport, and we was waiting. We stayed overnight there, waiting for the a cargo ship to come in and take us back to France, England, mm -hmm. because they wanted us back to fly another mission in case they needed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, we took it in the nightlife of Be uh, Belgium. And so that was when you were that was when you were wounded. You have a shirt on, combat wounded shirt. Yes, so I had. A, I got a piece. Of no, that was in Germany. Oh, this is another it, incident. Yeah. And uh, do you have? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sort. Okay. Uh, uh, we were spearheading for the British Second Army. What we would do? We'd go forty miles in. We would land, and then the troops would come back, 
and open up a channel for the armies to come in. And we were spearheading for the British uh, Army. And uh, anyway, they uh, uh, laid down a big smoke screen. We couldn't see the ground. We just, just circled around up there. And I looked up, and there was a bunch of high lines. I told my co-pilot to get on the spoilers. He spoils eight, uh, 40 foot of the wing, uh, and I put it into a slip like this. It's just like an elevator. It'd go down. And we I just cleared those lines. Mm. And they were hot, we found out later. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Anyway, uh, I landed, and uh, there was a German in over the farmhouse over there. He had a machine gun, his own, uh, went, mounted on the window casing, and he would open, uh, put the machine gun out and fire at us. Anybody would move, mm-hmm. and I tried to shoot him with my carbine, and that thing wouldn't reach it. But uh, another glider came in, and one of the troops yelled over, said, do you have any grenades? And I said, yes, we got a bunch. I went crawled back in the glider and got a box out, opened them up, threw him one, and I reached for another, but he said, I won't need relevant. And he put that thing on there, and, you know, they elevated, and... You could just see it tumbling in the air, and it hit that window right where that machine gun was. Wow. Just tore the side of the building out. I laughed till I cried. Yeah. And, well, uh, that was the enemy. Yes. That was that was in between you and safety. Yeah. So. And, well, uh, well, I tell you, we could go on and on with you, and, and we we're going to continue an, our, our series, but um, unfortunately, our segment has run out. But thank you for sharing those two stories because that was fascinating and we appreciate all that you did um for us um and this was bill bill thank you thank you very much thank you very much so we're going to continue on we've got some other guests we've got some other people that we'd like to talk to and we want to thank mortgage investors group for sponsoring this show as well as admiral title and we'll see you guys right back at the other side of this break Welcome back into the housing hour and we're listening to echoes from the greatest generation part one. This will be our final segment um, of this show. And we want to thank you guys very much uh, for coming in and joining us. It's been a a great time spending here with, uh, with our veterans. And we want to thank also the Knox homes for being a special sponsor of this series and this show. And, um, you know, we're going to continue on talking. Uh, And I wanted you, Mark, if you don't mind, to introduce our next guest. Absolutely. Proud to have him here. He's a great man, and he is my father-in-law, former U.S. Army, and uh, worked in the Manhattan Project during the wartime. He's graduated from Virginia Tech. Isn't that correct? That's right. So Buford Carter is here, and we're happy to have you. Welcome, Buford. Thank you. He's a Hokie. He is. Virginia Tech Hokies, right? And that's engineering school, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, t- tell us, give us a little bit of insight. You, you were talking off air a little bit, um, and I've heard so much um, about it all positive from <laughs> from your son-in-law here. Um, and, and just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what, 
what you were doing back then? Well, I went to VPI, and I graduated in December of 1943. I had a job offer from Union Carbide, and I went in January of 1944. I went to New York City to work with Union Carbide on the Manhattan Project. We were doing uh, development work for the barrier for K-25. Of course, I didn't know this at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I worked in New York for about five months, at which time I was drafted. Okay. I spent uh, hmm. some time, in a uh, very short time, in uh, hmm. basic training, a couple of weeks, really two or three weeks. And... I then received orders to go back to New York and continue with what I was doing before I was drafted. Mm -hmm. So I finished the the barrier work in New York was finished towards the end of 1944. So in the fall, we were transferred to uh, Oak Ridge. I stayed for a number of years. Almost 50, right? <laughs> Almost 50 years. So back um, in 44, when you went back to New York with Union Carbide, then you were then transferred, I guess, back down to Oak Ridge, or down to Oak Ridge, rather, right. where, where you were going to implement, I guess, what you guys had been working on um, in New York, or, or how, was, how did that all work? What were you doing? Well, well the work in New York was different from okay. Oak Ridge. Okay. It was, uh, actually, it was development work mm -hmm. for the barrier. Mm. And... Uh, now, when you say barrier, excuse me, but what what does that mean? That's a membrane that separates the U-235 from the U-238. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, you you said you did not know kind of what that what exactly y'all were doing. I mean, you know, you knew generally, right? Um, but what was the kind of orders that you guys received as it related to the work that you were performing? Because I know it was very secret. Yes, uh I actually, uh, when I when I went to New York, uh, one of the fellows said that uh, the it was work on control radioactivity, which mm. it wasn't, but uh, right. <laughs> that was getting close. Mm -hmm. So when you received these orders to go to Oak Ridge or, or to be transferred to Oak Ridge, what did you know about Oak Ridge at the time? I mean, and, and if you look at even the, the current events at, at that time, you know, there was obviously we were in wartime, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, I, th I think, not fear maybe from the military, but I think the, the general population of America was fear just because there was that, that kind of unknown, um, what was going to happen? How was this all going to turn out? I think we had confidence that we would win. But when you came to Oak Ridge, I mean, you had not heard of Oak Ridge, I guess, other than, you know, through your channels. But, but what did it feel like to, to move down to Oak Ridge? You, ha you had a family, uh, I guess you're starting a family, I suppose, or going to be starting a family. Well, family came quite a bit right. later. <laughs> but, you, you know, you start with a wife and that moves on. But, but talk about how, how that, all that transition happened. Well, I, I, was, I was in the Army and, you know, I, you do what to tell you to. Mm -hmm. So... It was, uh, of course, interesting to know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what the work was going to be like. So, so, when, it was a, so when that moment happened, that, that the bombs did go off in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, 
Mm-hmm. Talk about where you were and what, what you were thinking. Do you remember what was going on? <laughs> I had worked. <laughs> I th- I think I had worked the midnight shift and I was asleep. Mm-hmm. And the noise woke me up. <laughs> the noise from the clamoring of, of what had happened. Yeah. Not the actual bomb. Yeah. No, not the actual bomb. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it, it woke me up. I remember thinking, well, at last we know what is going on. Mm-hmm. So, so they even were keeping, I mean, obviously they wouldn't, were not letting everybody know what was going on. But even the people that were working directly on the project did not have the understanding of what they were doing. I mean, they understood their segment of what they were doing. But the overall project, they had no idea. Yes, it was kept separate. Right. Uh, we, I, we all knew, you know, we were working on an atomic oh. bomb. Mm. But I had no idea of what was going on out in Washington mm. where they were producing plutonium. Mm. And I had no idea much of what was going on at X-10 or Y-12. And certainly not in Los Alamos and the other <laughs> no. places. Which, I mean, Buford, what's amazing to me is that this was all happened so quickly, and it was, they tested the bomb, you know, and then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it was, you know, they tested in New Mexico, and the next thing you know, they they dropped it. Was there a feeling, I guess it's kind of like, was there a feeling of accomplishment that you had contributed to ending the war, or was there a feeling of, were there other feelings? Because I'm sure it was mixed emotions. Well, surely it was. Yeah. I, I feel like I had a very small part in it. Mm-hmm. Well, it was 70,000 people that working. So. Mm-hmm. Right. I think everybody might say they had a small part in it, but it's all of those small, small parts put in together that creates the accomplishment, I think. So um, when you look back over your history, especially being that you're a, 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 not a native Oak Ridger, but you're, you've, you were there for a lot longer than most, and my grandparents came there in 44 as well, as a part of the Manhattan Project, so I have some history there as well. But talk a little bit about Oak Ridge and, and your experience in Oak Ridge, and you know it's it's a great community. Uh, but tell me a little bit about your feelings about it. Well, it, I remember the first thing that I, that I noticed was a lack of trees. Of course, <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they had devastated. They, they had cleared the place out. <laughs> right, and. Also, it seemed that it rained about 25 days out of the 30, the first <laughs> month I was there. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was going to go on the whole time. Right. <laughs> like, of, I'd rather be in New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or wherever. Right. It, it was a little more interesting in New York. Well, mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting in Oak Ridge, really. Mm-hmm. So much going on. It was uh, things going on night and day, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet. Uh, a number of the bowling alleys. Were, I mean, I believe it was five bowling alleys in Oak Ridge. Wow. And they're, now they're down to one. I yeah. Think. You could bowl night and day. Were you ever allowed off base, or did you have to stay in Oak Ridge that entire period? Well, I could I could leave Oak Ridge some, but uh, generally I just was there. <laughs> And, and did you see a lot of the, I guess, the delegates that were coming to, to, to identify the needs? Like, you know, you think of Oppenheimer, I think of General Groves. Did you ever see those characters? 
no, that's a little out of my range. <laughs> right. Well, but they were they were there, and Oak Ridge is a small city. Maybe you passed them on Oak Ridge Turnpike or something. Mm-hmm. So what's one of the things or a couple of the things that you think that my generation, I think, needs to be aware of about where you guys came from and what role your generation played? I mean, what are some things that, like my, grand, my kids and my grandkids, what are some things that they should know about that era? that maybe they don't? Well, it was a time when everybody was working in the same uh, direction. Mm. We had a a job to do, and that's what we were working to do. Mm. Uh, Whether it was uh, six days a week or seven days a week, they had to work. Mm -hmm. And we we tried to to do our best. Well, I think that that's a good takeaway, Mark, not only for what we're talking about, but I was just on vacation recently and we did this, this kayak thing out in the middle of the ocean and, and my wife, you know, is up in the front and she's rowing one way and I'm trying to row the other way and we can't seem to row in the right direction. But what I hear you saying was that that's kind of what the, that generation, everybody was rowing in the same direction and, and you guys were, were all on the same page. And you did it because, in the, from what I've heard over the last um, few people here, is that we all had a common we had a common number one goal, but we also had the same dreams, which was freedom and, and and overall happiness for our country. So that's one of my big takeaways for sure, and that's one thing I want them to know because I don't think that we're all you know rowing in the same direction right now. Yes, I believe that's true. Yeah. So, so Mark, as you've got to know Buford over the years, Oak Ridge, we're going to continue our series in the Oak Ridge series for sure. But what are some things that you have learned about Oak Ridge and his, not just his part, because like he, he mentioned, he was one part of, of a bigger, bigger part, but it's helped you to understand because you work in Oak Ridge. Yeah, there's, there's all these folks and just everybody that we've talked to here, there is a dogged determination and there is a relentless pursuit of what they're their job is mm. and they don't get sidetracked they're very focused so that's the one thing that's amazes me because even the younger generation today they don't seem to be as focused mm. and this this generation the greatest generation seem to be very job oriented and very specific to them mm. and they take really zero credit every time you try to tell one of these congratulations thank you for being a hero for your service they they push back on that because they had a job to do everybody had a job to do and they were all focused on doing that and Buford's the same way every mm. time I try to talk to him about that he said I didn't do anything yes right. you did <laughs> right yes you did you your yeah. whole life was dedicated to that service mm-hmm. and future his 50 years of service to the federal government in doing that. Yeah. And I, and I think too, Buford, that I look at some, and I won't point out specific people, but I see people in my generation. And then I think about my grandmother who, you know, is thriving today. And your grandfather, who was the security guy yeah. at Martin Marietta. He, right. I mean, at, in the Atomic Manhattan, Energy yeah. Commission. And I, and I look at, and I never met my grandfather. Of course, I was only, uh, I guess I was like two years old when he passed away. So I met him, but I don't know him. Um, but I, I know my grandmother, you know, and I look at her, her determination and her perseverance and, you know, she had to, she had, if it hadn't have been for her prayers, <laughs> then I probably wouldn't have been able to persevere because I just, I think <clears throat> some of us in this generation, we're just missing that part of our DNA. I don't know, but she, she uh, Lois, my grandmother and you and the other folks I've talked to today, there was something instilled in them 
And I can't really put a finger on where it came from other than their parents and generations that were passed on to them. Was there ever a time during the war, and I look across the table and I see everybody that was interviewed, was there ever a time that you ever thought, contemplated the fact that we could lose? Was that ever crossed your mind at any point? See, that's the thing. There was never any doubt. Everybody I talked to, there was never ever doubt. We're going to succeed in this. And I think think that's huge. That is huge. Because you're in it to win it, number one. But, you know. You expect. You expect to win. You know, when you go to a Tennessee game, you, you don't always expect to win. I don't have that expectation <laughs> but anymore. when it comes to something as big as this, you expect to win. And, and the resources, and not just that, but in the space program, you know, we, we expected to win. And it's jail. that generation, Absolutely. you know, because I think that's where they came from. I mean, in the 60s, it was just a continuation of that dedication. Yeah. That's what makes these guys the greatest generation. Absolutely. Well, Buford, thank you very much for sharing your story with us and talking to us. We definitely appreciate it. And again, thank Mark for getting you guys together. And, and, and this has been an excellent series. Part one. Um, this is part one, and we're going to continue this uh, as well. So we want to thank our guests today. Thank you to Mortgage Investors Group for being a part of this show and sponsoring us. And thank you to the greatest generation for all that they did. We'll see you next time right here on The Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and the why not. You need to know, so come here to find out. This program is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.